Good morning. My name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here in Carmel. I am a child of the 80s, so I'm totally digging that intro, right? Uh, Have you noticed, and, and I'm sure you have, it'd be impossible for you to not notice, but how much we enjoy music changes from one generation to the next. It's never the same. In 10 years, who knows what music is going to look like. Recently, we went to a restaurant, and right by the hostess station, there was this big box, and it had lights on it and a screen and buttons that you could touch, and my daughter was just drawn to it. And she's looking at it, and she's like, Daddy, what is that thing? And I tried to explain to her what a jukebox is and, and when and why and how they were, they were popular. And she thought it was really cool, but she didn't understand why you would need a big box to play music when you can play music through something as small as your phone, right? Why would the restaurant need that? Speaking of small, when was the last time you saw or used one of these bad boys, right? Now, if, you, if you're not in your head, you know what they are, but if you're young, you're looking at that thinking, what is that? Is that like some kind of weird medical device? Like what would that possibly have to do with music? How could you enjoy music on something like this? Because if you're young, you know about Spotify playlist, right? And that's where all your music lives. But if you're older, you're thinking, did he say Spotify? What is a Spotify? That sounds like a terrible diagnosis that I don't want to get from my doctor. What is that? Well, for those of you that don't know, this is a cassette tape. And back in the day, you would take one of these and you would put it into one of those. That's called a boom box. And this is how you would listen to music. And if you were really good, you could take one of these and you could make your own mixtape. You would listen to the radio, and when your favorite song came on, some of you kids are thinking, why would you ever do this? You would have to listen to the radio, and when your song came on, you'd hit the record button, and you would record the whole song, and at the right moment, you'd hit stop, and then you know what you'd do? You'd do it again the next time your next favorite song came on, and you'd fill up side A, and you'd flip over to side B, because there's a side B. (laughs) And if you were really, really good, you'd have the perfect summer mixtape, right? And it was so much, it was so much fun, but it was like an art and a science. To have a really good mixtape, it was, it was a bit of an art and a science. But for, again, for, for you youngins in the room, you're thinking, why? Look, that was the grandfather to Spotify. That's all we had. That's, that's the best that we could do. But here's the thing. Regardless of where you fall on the age and music spectrum, today we're going old school. We're kicking off a brand new series called Summer Mixtape. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at a sacred playlist that's found in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms. And if you've never heard of the book of Psalms before, here's what you need to know. That word psalm literally means song. And there's 150 of these songs that are, that are collected in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And while a lot of these psalms or songs are credited to be written by or about King David, the truth is that a lot of other authors got in on the action and helped create this sacred playlist that we know as the book of Psalms. And over the next few weeks, our teaching team is gonna be going through some of these songs together to help share, share with you some of the ones that have meant a lot to us in the course of our lives. Now, as we do this, we're praying that God would teach us how to use his word, not only to worship him, but to pray to him through these psalms. And here's something really cool about the psalms. These, not, these aren't just songs, they're prayers. And there's a lot of heartfelt passion in these prayers. And one of the things that's fascinating about the psalms is this, just like any other good Jewish person in his day, Jesus would have been very familiar with the psalms. He would have prayed the psalms. He would have prayed with the psalms in mind. And so here at Genesis, it's our goal to be more and more like Jesus in everything that we do. And so an added benefit, added bonus for us of going through the Psalms is learning how to pray the Psalms the way that Jesus did. 
But before we get too far along, I want to take a stop and just give you a quick overview of, of what the Psalms are so you kind of know what it is that we're diving into. Now, traditionally, the Psalms are broken down into five different categories. There are Psalms that express sorrow and grief and others that declare the greatness of God. There's Psalms that give thanks to God for things that he's done. And there's Psalms that declare the wisdom of God's word over our life. And there are even a special set of Psalms known as enthronement Psalms or royal Psalms that point directly or indirectly to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And so today, as we get started, I wanna dive into a psalm that for me has meant a lot uh, over the years. It, it, I come back to this psalm on a regular basis. It, it kind of helps shape my mindset about God, specifically, specifically when I find myself feeling overwhelmed or defeated or discouraged or alone. Now, thankfully for me, I only feel that way when I learn that life is out of my control which is the game of life, right? Every, I just feel this way so often when I realize I wanna do this, but life goes this way and I find myself feeling alone. I'm overwhelmed, I'm, I'm distracted, I'm defeated. And a lot of times if, if you're like me, I bet your mood rises and falls on how well you think you're doing in the moment or how well things are going for you personally. And our confidence can kind of go up and down if people are praising us and our mood can depend on how productive we feel. If things are falling into place with a reasonable amount of effort, you feel good. If people compliment you and your, your competencies and your accomplishments, your confidence can soar. But when things don't go the way you want, if you're like me, I bet you find yourself asking some questions. You're like, God, why, why is this happening? And simple things become overwhelming. And it doesn't take much to throw you off track. And I bet if you're like me, you, you ask questions like, God, where are you? Why, why is this happening to me, and when we feel alone and overwhelmed, we don't really know what to do. And I'm gonna guess that some of us, I'm gonna guess some of us feel alone when we're at home because the relationships that matter the most to us are in absolute chaos. Or worse yet, they're just non-existent. They're, they're not even there. There's constant fighting where there should be peace or there's rejection where you look for love and acceptance and that's painful. Or some of us are anxious when we're away from home. We desperately want to have relationships with lots of other people in lots of other places, but when we're out in public, we have social anxiety. We're, we're terrified of feeling rejected or unwanted, and we could be in a crowd of people and feel completely alone. Or maybe you're overwhelmed at work. You work as hard as you can. You give your best, but the competition is fierce, and your supervisors are always breathing down your throat and praise goes to everyone else for everything else, but all you receive is criticism and blame. Or maybe it's the uncertainty of the future that leaves you feeling alone and unsure. You know what you want to have happen and you're planning for that, but you also know that the outcomes are out of your hands and that just, it freaks you out. You don't know what to do about it. And again, you find yourself feeling alone and, and discouraged. And when we feel that way, isn't it unnerving? I mean, it's, it's hard to feel comfortable in your own skin when you're anxious and you're uncertain about what to do next. And if you're like me, you probably try to cope in lots of different ways, right? You look to lots of things to fill in that void. Anything from money and success to social status and stuff. And it works for just a little while until you find yourself back at the beginning again. And you realize, man, that stuff just, it doesn't do it for me. What, what, why is there this gap in my life? Well, if you've ever felt that way, I've got some good news for you. The psalm that we're gonna look at today addresses that very issue. In fact, it was written as a response of worship to the times that you feel alone and overwhelmed 
and defeated. If you want to follow along today, we're going to be in Psalm 62. Now that's on page 339 in the Bibles around the room, but I want to give you a heads up. I'm going to be using a little bit of a different translation of scripture today. It's the New Living Translation. All the verses that you need are on the screen, but if you want to follow along, turn to, turn to uh, Psalm 62. But here's what you need to know about Psalm 62. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. It was written as a psalm of trust by David, and it's meant to be sung as a worship response whenever we feel that, that sense of being alone or defeat sinking in. In fact, many commentators believe that this psalm was written about a particular season of David's life where he was feeling this very way. Now, just in case you don't know who David is, here's what you need to know. He lived in 1000 BC, about 3000 years ago, and he is one of the greatest characters found on the pages of scripture. And when he was young, God told him, promised him, he was gonna be the next king of Israel when he was between 10 and 15 years old, which is a pretty awesome promise. But if you don't know anything about David's story, he had to wait a while because there was already another king in place. His, his name was Saul. And Saul was not a good king, but he was king nonetheless. And so David was gonna have to wait for something to happen to Saul before he was gonna get to be king. And a big part of his story is he had to wait like 15 to 20 years in order to actually be king. That's a long time, right? And you know what made it even longer? Saul knew about David. And he didn't like David. And he used the entire army of Israel to chase him down and to try to hunt him down like an animal. But finally the day came when Saul died in battle. And so if you're David, you're thinking, okay, this is probably my moment. I get to be king sometime soon, but something really weird happened in the kingdom of Israel. A small group of people declared that David was their king. But the majority of the people were with Saul's son who declared that he was king. Now imagine what it would be like to be David. You've waited for 15 to 20 years for this to happen, to be king over the entire nation, but now they're divided in two and you're with the minority party. What would you do? How, how, would, you, how would you feel? I mean, wouldn't you be confused, frustrated? Wouldn't that just be awkward anytime your people are like, hey, David, why aren't you king over everything? And you're like, Ugh. I don't know. What would, you, what would you do about that? Well, on top of that tension, the other guy that was now claiming to be king was sending his men to fight against David's men to see how strong he was, to see if he could make it, to see if he was going to last. It'd be rough. It'd be a rough spot to be in. And David found himself in the middle of an unplanned and awkward life transition. And he didn't really know what to do about it. He was trying to navigate the present tactfully for the future of the kingdom as a whole. And he didn't know what to do. And I guarantee you, he was feeling alone and overwhelmed and defeated. If you want to read about it sometime, you can go to 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. The whole story is there, but it's in the midst of this awkward life transition where David was waiting to, for these promises by God to be fulfilled that Psalm 62 was written. And as we read these words together today, you do not have to try hard to hear his passion come out. Now remember, this is a psalm of thanksgiving written during a very difficult period of time. So listen to how he begins Psalm 62 verse 1. He says this, I wait quietly before God for my victory comes from him. I wait quietly for God. I'm waiting for this promise that you've made, God. I'm waiting for it to be fulfilled. Now in English, verse 1 is commonly translated to say one of two things. I wait quietly before God or another version says truly my soul finds rest in God. But here's what's interesting. When, you, when you're translating Hebrew, the original language, over to English, sometimes there's some things that get lost in translation or the translations are different. So the original Hebrew reads like this. Only to God is my soul 
silence. Only to God is my soul silence. Now that doesn't read very well in English, but I want you to pay attention to that word only. That word only is a little Hebrew word that looks like this and it's pronounced ach. You gotta kind of spit in the back of your throat if you're gonna say it right, ach, okay? And it means indeed or verily, it's often translated as truly, only, or alone. And here's what I find fascinating is I have studied this verse for myself personally. That little word that is so easy to overlook and that is so easy to lose in translation, I believe is the key to understanding Psalm 62 in its entirety because that little word is used six times in the 12 verses that make up this psalm. And in fact, some commentators believe a more accurate translation of verse one reads like this. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. Depending on the translation of the NIV that you use, if it's an older version, that's how yours would read. My soul finds rest in God alone. And here's the point that David is making as he begins this psalm of thanksgiving. He's beginning with the idea by saying, my faith isn't God plus my circumstances. My faith isn't in God plus my feelings. David wants us to know my faith, no matter what, is gonna depend on God, not what's going on in my life. Not, no matter who is with me or against me, no matter how high or low I feel, true peace for me, for my soul, is only gonna be found in God alone. Now remember that word alone. Look at what he says in verse two. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will never be shaken. That's that same word again, twice in two verses. David says, my soul finds rest in God alone. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Now this image of God being a rock in a fortress is used all throughout scripture, a lot in the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms. And I think it's used for good reason because it was an image that really hit home for David. If you're familiar with his story, you probably know he spent most of his 20s running from King Saul and hiding in rocky places and caves for safety. And so when he writes these words and says, God is my rock, he's saying, I remember times when I lived in rocks for safety. And even though I was safe there, nothing compares to the safety that I found in God alone. And then he refers to God as his fortress that could never be shaken. Now I want you to think about it. You're David, God's promised that you're gonna be king and you're living in a cave. Where should you be living? In a fortress, in a palace somewhere, right? And so in his mind, he's thinking, God, you're my fortress. I'm looking forward to the day I get to move in to my kingly fortress. But again, in the middle of this Psalm of Thanksgiving, David is wise enough to understand that regardless of where he calls home for the moment, regardless of where he finds himself, he's worshiping God because he knows that in God alone, there is safety that no earthly fortress could ever provide, whether it was a cave or a palace. So David begins by praising God and thanking God for all these things, but then he does what you and I like to do, or at least I'm gonna speak for myself. He gets real with God about how real the circumstances are. He begins complaining about the people that are against him. Listen to what he says in verses three and four. He says, there's so many enemies against one man and all of them are trying to kill me. To them, I'm just a broken down wall or a tottering fence. They, they plan to topple me from my high position. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but they curse me in their hearts. Now, some of us think, oh, that sounds terrible. But then some of us think like, yeah, that sounds like my coworkers. 
That sounds like the people in my neighborhood. That sounds like the people that I live with. They, they are against me. And here's what I love about these verses. While David is praising God and thanking him, he also says, hey, God, can I just be real with you for a moment? There are some very real people that are causing me some very real pain. And he uses this illustration of a fence or a wall that's getting ready to fall over. And it's almost like he says, hey, God, my, my trust is in you alone. But if I could be honest with you, Lord, I'm feeling weak. I'm, I'm feeling really tired. I'm feeling vulnerable. I don't want my enemies to know this, but I feel like a fence that's just getting ready to fall over. If they were to push hard enough, I'd be done. And poor David, bless his heart. Don't you wish you could relate to him? I mean, we live in Hamilton County, so we've got all of our stuff together. We don't know what it's like to feel like a broken, busted down fence, right? We're just all perfect people, living the dream, changing the world one day at a time with our perfect marriages and our beautiful kids and our dream jobs. As long as we don't have to talk about the relational shrapnel that we carry around with us. We don't want anybody to know about that because we think we can handle that one on our own or there's the ever-changing sliding social scale of trying to keep up with everybody that makes us really nervous and freaks us out. But again, we don't want to talk about that. There's the financial weights that we carry with us that are strangling us and they are just crushing us one day after another. There's the hidden brokenness of our past or the terrifying uncertainty of our future that totally freaks us out. And when you think of it like that, doesn't David's analogy of a broken down, busted fence hit home for you? Don't you just feel like you're leaning in a direction and it, and it wouldn't take a lot to be pushed over? And so David is real about his feelings and he's real about his emotions. And it seems like he's complaining, but then he does something pretty amazing. He's being real with God, but then he returns to this idea that his hope is found in God alone. Look at verses five and six. He says, let all that I am wait quietly before God for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress while I will never be shaken. Now, does that sound familiar? It sounds just like verses one and two, doesn't it? It's like the refrain of a song. He starts with this idea. He gets real with God about how he feels, but then he returns to this thing of, okay, God, but I know what's most important. What's most important is that my hope is found in you alone. And he comes back to this idea that everything he needed, anything of value that's gonna last is only gonna be found in God alone. But then in verse seven, he adds something. And in verse seven, I remember reading this for myself and it stopped me dead in my tracks. There's a word in this verse and I, I couldn't get past it. It spoke directly to my heart because it cut me right into, look at what he says in verse seven. My victory and my honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Now, do you see that word honor? That word honor can also be translated as glory. And I don't know about you. I tend to be a lot more concerned with my honor and my glory than I am with God's honor and God's glory. I'm not proud to admit that. It is not a good thing. That is just the reality of how my mind works. And more often than I care to admit, I find myself as a man and as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as a civilian, wanting to fight for and to defend and even promote my own honor. And I remember coming across that word honor and it just stopped me in my tracks thinking, whoa, 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 that's my reputation. What's David telling me here? What, what do I need to change? What do I need to change? And think about it, for David, in this moment, he's supposed to be king. He's, he's supposed to be experiencing the honor that comes with being king. But he had arrived at a place where he wasn't 
worried about his throne. He was worried. He knew that his reputation and his very life were completely dependent on God alone. And for me, I read that and think, man, I need to do that too. Like I know it here, but I needed to sink in here. I needed to transform the way that I live. And then look at how David ends verse seven. He says, he is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Now that word refuge means shelter from danger. In other words, David is teaching us that no matter what anyone else thinks about me, no matter what anyone else says about me, God alone is my shelter from people's attacks on my character. And David wants us to know when we allow our souls to find rest in him alone, nothing that's said about you, nothing that's done to me can define us. He is our shelter. And then he goes on in verse eight to say this, oh my people, now he's speaking corporately. Oh my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him for God is our refuge. David is saying when you feel like a busted, broken down wall that could easily be pushed over, when all the odds are stacked against you, when all hope seems lost, when your marriage is disintegrating, when your relationships are burning up, when your career is going down in flames, no matter what it is, when your reputation is on the line, we can pour out our hearts to God because we know he is our refuge. He is our safety when danger comes. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, you know what, that sounds good. I need to hear that. But what about the people? What about the circumstances, Jerry? They're real. Like when I go back to work tomorrow, they're gonna be there waiting for me. When I go home later, I'm gonna step right back into the mess. When school starts back up, all the same things are gonna happen. What about that? Well, David writes about that in the next two verses. And you know what he says about those people, his enemies and those circumstances that are weighing in on him? Essentially, he says they are nothing more than a puff of air. Now granted, in the moment, for me and you, they're like, yeah, but that, they feel like a devastating hurricane in the moment. But I love this. David says, you know, in reality, they're nothing more than an obnoxious sneeze. They, uh, they are loud and they are obnoxious. They make a mess of things in the moment. But in the grand scheme of things, they are totally powerless when you compare them to the power and the shelter that's found in God alone. Now, in light of everything that we've learned about this passage so far, this Psalm of Thanksgiving, and how we can find our hope in God alone and the reality of people that push against us, I wanna stop and ask you a really important question. What is causing you to feel overwhelmed, defeated, and alone? What is it that's pushing on you and threatening to topple you over? What's robbing you of joy? What's keeping you awake at night? What's tearing your family apart? What's threatening to define who you think you are? What is it? I don't, know, I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And, and I bet for you, I bet it's real. I bet the pain is real. I bet that feeling in your stomach is real. That tightness in your chest, it's real, isn't it? You don't wanna write it off. You can't just ignore it. But what if, here's a question. What if? What if what David is saying is true? What if we looked at the people and the circumstances and we began to pray through these ancient songs and said, okay, God, my hope is found in you alone. My soul finds rest in you. Here's my situation. How do they come together? Does that just mean everything goes away? Does that mean that your enemies just magically disappear? Does that mean that life gets better and you get a promotion and a race tomorrow and you're the boss? Does that mean that they come back home and that everything with your kids as well? I mean, maybe eventually, 
hopefully. But in the moment, it doesn't mean that everything goes away. But just like David, we could learn to pray these things and to worship God in the midst of our circumstances and we could live out our faith in ways that we were intended to live out. And I realized, I just wanna say this. I was thinking about this the other day. When I read the Psalms and I read about David's confidence in God, it's a little sickening, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, David, you were king. But you know what? I don't think David ever anticipated that we were gonna be reading these things 3,000 years after he lived. If anything, we've stolen his journal. And we're just looking to see what he told himself to do in the midst of really difficult circumstances. I think when David and other psalmists wrote these psalms, they weren't like, oh, this is what people need to hear. I think they were saying, this is how I feel, but this is what I need to do. This is how I need to respond to God in spite of what's going on around me. So what would it look like for us to do the same? What would it look like for us to follow David's example? Now, as it turns out, there's a really good example found in the New Testament of this, of Psalm 62 being lived out. And it comes in Jesus's life at the very end where we find him feeling very alone, very overwhelmed and incredibly anxious about his current situation and his immediate future. And it's in this moment where we see him begin to practice or put into practice, I should say, Psalm 62. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that in his final hours of freedom, Jesus was aware of a plot that was in motion at that moment for him to be arrested, crucified, and killed. And he even knew that one of his disciples was in on it. And when he found out about it, you know what he did? He didn't call the news. He didn't call a lawyer and he didn't go run and hide. He didn't tweet about it. He went and he prayed. He went outside of the city of Jerusalem. He went to his favorite spot to pray at the base of the Mount of Olives in a garden called Gethsemane. And it's really amazing. Matthew records for us these words that Jesus say. You've heard these words before, but I want you to pay really close attention to them. This is Jesus, God in the flesh. Listen to what he says to his disciples in Matthew 26, 38. He told his closest three disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I need you guys right now. By his own admission, Jesus tells them, I am stressed to the max. And it's safe to say he was feeling overwhelmed. He was feeling anxious. He had that feeling in his stomach. His chest was tight. In fact, later we learned he was so stressed, he was sweating drops of blood. He was feeling alone and he begins to pour out his heart to God. And when he prays, he prays, God, please, this is what's getting ready to happen. Look at what he says. He went a little further. He bowed down with his face to the ground. Some, some translations say he threw himself on the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. God, it's getting ready to get bad. The odds are stacked against me. My honor and my reputation are on the line. My life is in jeopardy. The threat was real and it was imminent. But it was at that moment that Jesus prays something that doesn't even make sense. God, I am in trouble. This is what I want to happen. But then look at what he says. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. When his world was coming undone and he was completely overwhelmed. Jesus models for us what it means when we feel alone to put our trust and our hope in God alone. He simply prayed, Lord, let your will be done. 
Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus prayed that prayer, that whole thing, three different times. He prayed it, and then he went back to find his friends, and they were asleep, and he woke them up, and he went and he prayed it, and he came back, and they were asleep. Now, if you're Jesus, these are your best friends. You're sweating drops of blood. Wouldn't you feel disappointed? Wouldn't you feel uh, just alone and afraid? But he just kept praying, Lord, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And I just have to imagine that Psalm 62 is ringing in his ears. He knew how to pray these Psalms. And so I don't know what it is that's making you feel alone or overwhelmed or discouraged or anxious. But I know for me, if there's anything that I need to learn from this Psalm and from Jesus's last example that he sets for us before he's arrested, it's that I need to learn how to pray these prayers in this way. I need to give God thanks no matter what is happening. And I need to tell my soul, you have to find rest in God alone. There's nowhere else to look. Your friends will let you down. Your enemies are gonna push in on you, but God will never give up on you. When we find ourselves feeling alone, the wisest thing we can say is, my soul finds rest in God alone. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and my honor come from him alone. He alone is my shelter in times of danger. And then listen to what David says to end this Psalm out in verses 11 and 12. He says, God has spoken plainly and I have heard it many times. Power, O God, belongs to you. Unfailing love, O Lord, is yours. Surely you repay all people according to what they have done. I mean, David is kind of saying a thousand years before Jesus ever lived, Father, this is what I want. This is how I feel. But I trust you. I'm giving thanks to you for whatever it is you're gonna choose to do. And so I don't know if it's the shame of your past. I don't know if it's the disappointments of today or the uncertainty of tomorrow, if it's the sadness of life, the pressures of work, the attacks of others. Maybe your reputation has been smeared. The bottom line that David would want us to know when we feel alone, just like David and just like Jesus, we can say, my soul finds rest in God alone. So what would it look like for us today to begin to put this into practice? Well, maybe you're not following Jesus yet and so you don't know how to accurately use these tools. I would encourage you to start to talk to someone about beginning a relationship with him. Interesting side note, the word salvation that's found four or five times in this passage, it's in Hebrew, it's translated Yeshua, the name of Jesus in the New Testament. Fascinating, salvation is found in Jesus alone. What would it look like for you to begin to walk with Jesus? But for those of us that walk with Jesus, are you ready to stop going through the motions? Would you be willing to dive into these ancient songs and to pray them and say, here you go, God, this is your word. I I need it in my life. When you feel alone, and I'm asking this to you, but I'm asking this to myself, will we put our trust in him alone? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the power of your word. I'm thankful for the truth of your word. I'm thankful that when David, when David wrote these things, he was going through very real situations with very real people pushing in on him. And he felt weak. I'm not sure that he was the strong king that we all imagine him being, but he rested in you. His soul found rest in you alone. You alone were his rock and his mighty fortress. Jesus, 
when your world was crumbling, that was your model. And you are our model. Would you teach us, Holy Spirit, would you show us how to follow in this pattern? That these Psalms wouldn't just be ancient things that we would read, but they would help us to engage with you in new ways every day. We love you. It's in your name we pray.